like to continue our exploration of how to approach conflict from the standpoint of our practice. I'd like to talk about the middle way and the transformation of conflict and talk pretty briefly, 20 minutes or so, and then leave time open for us to explore some of what we might have um, Some, of what we, some insights or some perspectives or some of our experiences from the earlier um, session in the sessions in the morning and afternoon. And I wanted to begin with a, a story that is from Suzuki Roshi, who's a Zen teacher who uh, founded the San Francisco Zen Center. And this is a story told by Lou Richmond, who's a Zen teacher who lives um, in Marin County. And he told the story that in 1968 he was um, going to a talk by Suzuki Roshi and he was, at the time, he was very much involved with the anti-war movement. And he was wondering, how do you bring together um, Zen practice or Buddhist practice and trying to stop war? And so he asked Suzuki Roshi, in the middle of a session, what is war? And right away, Suzuki Roshi pointed to some of the bamboo sort of uh, mats that were in the the zendo. And they had room for two people. They were about three foot by six foot. And he said, you see these mats? Everyone sits on the mats and they try to work out the wrinkles in the mats. Where the wrinkles meet between the people, that's war. That's Zen. (laughs) 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 And perhaps if you appreciate or don't appreciate that, might explain why you're here. (laughs) 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 As opposed to... But anyway, the story really spoke to me, and I think it, it really points to what we were exploring before with that very, very simple, but for me, very insightful model of looking at a conflict and seeing the tendencies for it to form into this just crass opposition between two sides. We could call that a duality. And what Suzuki Roshi is saying is that in some way, that's the very structure of war. And if we look to our conflicts, we can see that some of them have that form. Some of them seem to look like I'm right, you're wrong. Some kind of conflict in which there's tension, in which there's both sides sort of affirming their own correctness. And what we're encouraged to do is to find ways to avoid that duality or ease the duality or move towards something that in some ways involves a meeting of the best of both sides rather than in some ways the worst, which is what we could say war represents. And I think in terms of our practice, we may be in some ways, especially on the alert, on the alert in our lives for times when we find that duality appearing. 
when we find some kind of rigid opposition, and I'm on one side and you're on another, we should take that really, I think, as an invitation to practice, an invitation to see if I'm somehow clinging to one side or if there's a way that we can find a way to, in a way, satisfy the best of each of us. And there's another way in which the very teaching of the Buddha is expressed as a way to avoid that kind of polarized set of opposites. The Buddha called it the middle way. He talked about the whole path that he was proposing as the path that could be called the middle way. And he often talked about it as the middle way between the extremes, the middle way that avoids this polarization into opposites. At one point, the Buddha said, anger, confusion, and dishonesty arise when things are set in pairs as opposites. And in this whole journey, in his own awakening, he talked about in terms of the middle way. For many years, he was taking what he later came to see as an extreme spiritual approach. For him, that was the approach of extreme asceticism. He, in some ways, tried to remove all pleasure from his experience through a lot of the old techniques and tools of the Indian yogis. He would eat very little. It's said that sometimes he would eat so little that he became like a living skeleton. He, at one point, could push on his stomach and feel his backbone. And if you go to Asia, there, in some monasteries, there are old sculptures or statues of the Buddha as a skeleton. He later came to see that as an extreme. And his original discovery of the middle way between the extremes came, in fact, when one day, being very famished and emaciated, he was sitting by the river. And a young woman who was a milkmaid named Sujata came to him and offered him rice porridge. And there was something in his own intuition which said, I've been too much on the extreme. I need to find some middle ground. And he took the porridge, and part of it was also reflecting that his opposition to all pleasure was also out of balance. At that moment, when the rice porridge was near, he reflected and remembered some of his experiences as a young man, in fact, as a 12 or 13-year-old, when he had been in almost like reveries that led him into deep meditative absorptions. He remembered how pleasant they were, and he remembered that those pleasant experiences could lead to insight. And that rejection of this other duality between I will avoid all pleasure and I will take on pain, he came also to reject. 
as a setup ruled by the extremes. And it's at that time when he took that nourishment and found this middle way that shortly thereafter he had enough strength to come to deep insight and came to awakening at that time. I like also to see, and this is something I learned from uh, John Travis, who's been uh, a main mentor these last years. John reflected and said, you know, in some ways, it's also a balancing, you might say, of the masculine and feminine. That previously I had taken this extreme, almost we would call it a macho approach, a macho approach to spiritual practice. I will use my will. I will deny my body. And when the Buddha said, no, I want to avoid those extremes, he opened up the possibility of awakening. And he later reflected on that. He said, the middle way is avoiding either the extreme of extreme asceticism or indulgence. And there's a different different kind of approach. And he talked in many ways about what this middle way is. And I wanted to talk further just about two other ways of seeing the middle way, two other forms that the middle way takes, which are very relevant to, to conflict. And then we'll open things up. And one of those forms has to do with being very careful about attachment to views. And we know that attachment to views are one of the main forms of conflict. And the Buddha said that it's crucial to avoid attachments to views. And he said views come in pairs of opposites. And he looked at the main views of his time and he said, you have one side taking the extreme and the other side taking the extreme and they just dispute with each other. And he said, what we need to do is look into where we're attached to views. So we could also say, just as the appearance of a conflict in which I'm rigidly opposed to another can be a wake-up call to look more deeply, so can it be to notice that I have an extreme view that I'm very attached to. It can be a wake-up call. I learned a lot about this, especially... um, well, I was going to say, I was going to talk about experience, but I, was, I looked over at Mary and said, especially in relationships. <laughs> One learns about extreme views in relationships, but there was a, there, <laughs> and, and attachments to views and so forth, and it's a training ground. And, and relationships, one of the metaphors I love for relationships that are positive is that there, there are two diamonds who are rubbing against each other and making each other shine <laughs> in their rubbing although the rubbing is painful. (laughs) And about, probably about, um, almost 20 years ago, I was part of a group that was um, trying to explore new visions. It was actually, at that time, I was a teacher of um, teaching in a college, and I was a teacher of philosophy. And there was a big grant that came from one of the Rockefellers to assemble um, sort of visionary so-called people. And I was proud to be <laughs> invited. But there, there was an invitation and it had about 25 people and it was connected with Esalen. And they gathered us all together and we 
had a three-year program where we met with each other and we tried to find a way to return what had once been this wonderful discipline connected with wisdom in the Western world, but had got very caught in narrow professionalism. Some of you may have experienced that in Philosophy 101. (laughs) And we were trying to bring philosophy back to its roots in wisdom, to its roots in spirituality, to its connection with practical matters and so forth. To, to, its, uh, to, to work with the mind-body split and so forth. What we noticed is that although there were wonderful people there, we noticed that at times there were conflicts of views. <laughs> and these wonderful, visionary, caring people seemed to be at times repeating just what we were complaining about. <laughs> it would be a little bit predictable. <laughs> But we, we, we did that. We found ourselves doing that. People, people would start to say, how can that person say that? And so forth. And at that point, um, one of the people in the group said, let's take any time we feel a charge about a view as a starting point for inquiry. If I find myself opposed to another person and I really think I'm right and I feel an emotional charge, can I make that a starting point for looking more deeply? And something was extremely powerful for me, and I've used that a lot in my teaching. And what he urged us to do, when we notice that there is a strong view, let me ask myself a series of questions. Why do I have such a strong view about this? Is there anything in the other person's view that is of any value whatsoever? (laughs) Might I... No. (laughs) Might I... Might I see something of value? Let me inquire using mindfulness into what's there for me when I feel a strong view. Is there something in my past connected with pain or something difficult that's connected with this charge? And so for me, often I've been inspired to take any disagreement about views as a chance to look more deeply, to see both where I'm attached, how I start forming my view, the opposite view, and to make that a kind of practice. And it's been very inspiring. Think of what that would be like if that practice were taken into the political world instead of these rigid debates and so forth. And so I invite you, if that resonates with you, to explore that as a possible practice. This is what the Buddha said about views. His encouragement was to be very careful about any rigid dogmatic views and in fact to learn how to explore them and let go of the attachment to views. He said, do not form dogmatic views in the world through either knowledge, virtuous conduct, or religious observances. Likewise, avoid thinking of oneself as either superior inferior or equal to others. The wise do not dispute opinions or fix on any view. And he also says, those who form strong views go about in the world annoying others. (laughs) 
And what was radical in a way was that he was including Buddhist views. He was including views about the Dharma. And it's been, I think, one of the um, great wonders that you can have a tradition which says, don't even get attached to your own view. Don't get attached to my view. And some of you know the Buddha once said, don't believe it just because I've said it. Don't be attached because of authority. Don't be attached to a view because of the teacher, but really look into it yourself and see what's right and see what's there and see what jives with your experience. And there's a second teaching that's connected with the middle way, which is a teaching about interdependence, which I think is also very important for for conflicts. And I want to end with with this um, short discussion of interdependence. One of the ways that we can work with conflicts is to really begin to see how a conflict is not so much this rigid duality, my view and your view, but I can, can I, when I have a conflict with someone, can I really see all the interdependent causes and conditions that lead to the conflict? Can I see my part in the conflict, the other person's part in the conflict, can I see the, all the conditions which lead the person to be as that person is, which lead me to be as I am? Can I see the degree to which the conflict involves suffering on both our parts? Can I look to my conflict and see this large, complex relationship with many causes moving in all directions? In other words, can I let go and learn to let go of my attachment to I'm here, you're there, I have the right view, you have the wrong view? Can I start seeing this vast web of causes that leads somehow to this crystallization in the conflict? And the idea is that if we can do that, we often become much more forgiving. We often can bring about that metta. It's like when you have a difficulty with a partner or someone you care about in a relationship and there's the rigidity and then you actually get to hear what's going on for the other person. All the causes and conditions. I was feeling this. I thought this. This is what I was wanting. This is what I did. I was operating with my best wisdom. And my experience is when I do that with a partner, something softens incredibly. There's an understanding. You know, the French have that phrase, to understand is to forgive. And so the cultivation of a sense of interdependence can be a wonderful way to soften conflict. You know, and it's it's a practice that I do at times when 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 I've been in a conflict, especially one that feels rigid. I try to, you know, try to understand where the person is coming from, where I'm coming from, What is it in my background that leads me to be tight or the other person to be tight? What are all the causes and conditions? And that, that understanding of causes and conditions and interdependence actually goes way beyond being useful for conflicts. It really gives a vision of how we might see the world and how we might um, understand this powerful reality when we're not fixated in views. How we might come, as as Blake said, to see infinity 
and a grain of sand. Do you, remember, do you know that quote from the poem? The poet William Blake says, let me see, I think I have it here, to see a world and a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. The sense that there's this vast interdependent set of causes and conditions and we tend to fixate and say, here am I, here's my view, here are you, we're opposed. But the invitation of the middle way is really to open to a much broader vision, this very powerful vision of interconnection so that in some way I'm interconnected with my opponents, with my partner, much more maybe, as Mary was suggesting, the sense of a dance. We're interconnected, we learn from each other, and we, if we can take that perspective, we can soften conflict and really come to see, in a way, um, how we're not so disconnected. And again, it was the Buddha's core insight in the moment of his awakening to see interdependence, to see the vast set of causes and conditions, and to have this broad mind that could see all of that. I think I will just end with um, a quotation. Actually, it's from a poem by Gary Snyder. It's his version of the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> Some of you know this. He, he, he ends after talking about his, uh, the wonders of the natural world. He ends by talking about the sense of interconnection as perhaps a, a, a deeper way to hold everything, particularly conflicts. He talks about there being one ecosystem in diversity under the sun, with joyful interpenetration for all. So I'll end there and just really invite us to um, reflect on anything that's been said or something that may have come up in the exploration of conflict earlier. So thank you. I was also particularly wondering whether everyone's problems were resolved when that wise being came and knocked. <laughs> Please. Well, I was, gonna, I, I was looking for the wise being to answer my problem. Yeah. And what the wise being said was wait. Hmm. That's beautiful, Duane. You remember that, that um, when the Dalai Lama talked about how you work with a conflict, he particularly focused on patience. Yeah. So, thank you, wise being. <laughs> it wasn't me, it was that other guy. <laughs> Please, Steve.
Mm-hmm. How do you distinguish between a legitimate need and a not legitimate need? Mm-hmm. I think what he was... Um, in other words, it wouldn't be a legitimate need to dominate another person or to control everything. That it would be more... I think what he actually does is he takes the legitimate needs back to very basic human needs like for security, for love, for connection. Um, um, rather, so, so an illegitimate need would be to, to dominate, to be in charge of everything, to control the resources, to control the world, and so forth. So what he's, what he's trying to do there is to find, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's an important distinction, is to find a way to... Um, and so it's really to bring out the best or to bring out what um, could be the basis for a sustainable solution. Because he would say that, that to meet legitimate needs for you know, food or for shelter or for being secure or whatever, that, that's how he does it. Yeah. I think that would be part of it. So, you know, some, some sense of being loved, being cared for, and so forth. Maybe in in Buddhist language we might say um, maybe an illegitimate need would be something which would be connected with greed, hatred, or delusion, which would be connected with reactivity or, or something like that. might be problematic. You know. Do you want to add something there? Well, I was just thinking that if you want it because of fear, there's a kind of a delusion that's in there because of the fear. You're not seeing clearly. So I think it fits your paradigm. Or people do, people do all sorts of things out of fear, right? They have all sorts of, I need this, I need that. Right? Which doesn't mean that the fear shouldn't be addressed. That might be important, but that they can't figure in the resolution of the conflict. Well, isn't there something about getting the person to see that their need is out of fear? Ah. Well, um, <laughs> here's what uh, here's what he says based on a lot of experience of working with conflict. That what actually seems to work well is not so much to get someone to see that one's supposed need is wrong or problematic, but he, what he actually said was, you know, and it, there's a little, there's um, a way in which this is um, using skillful means, but he, he says that um, a lot of times conflicts are because of pain from the past and the actions taken out of pain which often would come out of fear or reactivity. And if he says his experience in conflicts is that not always, but often, when you try to deal with the pain first, the painful aspects, the fear first, it's harder to get sometimes to the solution. And he's, he's particularly interested in 
practical conflicts in communities and in, you know, with countries and so forth. So he says, a good way, you have to have both the creative movement towards the very positive outcome, the positive response, and then later maybe work with the issues of pain and fear. If you start with that, you can get bogged down. That's his, that's his own view. And he, but he uses that. He says there's, it's sort of like to let what's positive draw you and then do the other work later. So in terms of politics, like if you look at something like um, the Middle East, he would say the way to work there is to, is to really create some very positive vision that people can feel attracted to and once they're attracted there, then they have the energy to work with all the pain from the past. Kind of like what South Africa did. You know, South Africa had this beautiful vision of a multi-racial democracy. They went there first. Then they did their Truth and Reconciliation Commission. If they had done the, first, if they had done the Truth and Reconciliation Commission first, they might not have, never have got to the uh, solution. And I'm, I'm, that's the simplified model, but it, it may be helpful for our own conflicts. It's really stressing the power of the positive vision to, to take one out of the quagmire. You know. yeah. Is that helpful, Steve? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say one thing. I mean, did you find that Peru-Ecuador story amazing? That, that one strong vision can resolve four wars. It's amazing, amazing story. Yeah, please. Well, I wanted to just thank you for, um, for providing a, a, a... I didn't... My, my person didn't come up with an answer. Yeah. But um, you provided the idea that an answer is possible. Mm-hmm. And I think when... Uh, unless when I get really stuck yeah. in something, my vision just shuts down. That's right. And I feel a certain hopelessness that does take energy away from yeah. being creative. Yeah. And so just the idea that, wow, you know, something something can work. I don't know what it is right now, but yeah. if I know that that can happen, that gives me a little more energy. Yeah. And, and then to go backwards and, and what we talked about, about relationships and then also with wise speech, suddenly I have tools feel like I have tools that I can use to help that vision manifest. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that you have that's really important, I think, at that place of confusion is you have your intention, which takes us right back to the very beginning, that sometimes when we can't see the answer, all we can see is our intention. And so it's like having a, you step out at night and you have a flashlight and you can only just see just so far. Right, and but each time you take a step, you can see a little bit further, and the intention is what guides you. Um, so I think it, it's helpful to remember that, that you don't. We don't always have the answers. And that other piece would be like the Gandhi story I told, that quality of listening, which I really think our practice is all about. Mm-hmm. It's all about listening, and so, and I think. I, I've, when I first started practicing, I was just amazed at how this practice awakens the intuitive mind. You know, how it awakens this ability to see freshly, to have insight, to see where I was previously stuck. In fact, one of the main problems, if I could call it that, 
for particularly for creative people who meditate is they get so many ideas they want to write them down all the time. <laughs> because it really, op- do, do, do you know that it opens up this intuitive mind that can see beyond stuckness. That's, I think that's really what, you know, that's why um, the, I think the Buddha was pointing to the practice as the way to resolve stuckness. Just the, the freshness of the mind can do it. Yeah. Yeah. As you bring that up, then I'm just curious as a practical point of practice that when you're having a lot of creative ideas, yeah. yet you've determined your discipline of sitting there in the cushion and yeah. watching the breath and not getting distracted, I mean, uh, is there some balancing point or just trust that that's stirring somewhere? You know, you've got this great idea and that I'm going to let it go because I'm back to the breath or, you know, taking the time, I mean, you can get where you're forever distracted writing little notes to yourself, too. So how does one balance this? Well, Jack, I can remember in giving instructions, likes, likes to talk about that creative layer, but it's a layer. Mm-hmm. So there's other layers. Mm-hmm. And if you stop at the creative layer, where all those wonderful ideas and the next great American novel and all of that reside, then it actually stops your, your, your deepening of your practice and mm-hmm. you won't. Um, my own personal sense of it, I don't know whether Donald would agree, is that if you're sitting down to meditate, meditate. <laughs> and don't trust that if the idea is fabulous enough, it will stick around and it'll still be there at the end of your sitting. I mean, it's a little like, you know those times you wake up in the middle of the night with a great idea, you write it down, you know, and you think, this is, this is the idea that's going to save the world, and then you look at it in the morning, and some of the great creative ideas, I think, fall into that category. So, yeah. uh, I'll add one thing to that, um, which um, I use in my practice. Actually... Um, it suggests this to people I work with, which is to, and it's pretty much along the lines of what Mary was saying, I think it really is important to keep the discipline of practice. And so what I suggest is that sometimes do your practice and then maybe do another session in which it's a lot about intention, clarity of intention. Okay, I'm doing my practice now, but then I'll, sit, I'll stay for 15 or 20 minutes later and there my intention is to let my creative ideas flow and I'll write them down. And just have a really clear distinction between the creative time and the practice time. And you can and, 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 and do what you need to in terms of creativity. So I do that a lot. I'm, you know, I, I write a lot, and, and I do that all the time. Please. Um, in terms of the conflict exercise, yeah. I was wondering if you have any advice if, if it seems like that's where the imagination is necessary and, and maybe also some some in, in using like Galtung's model some, sometimes people's needs are not really very clearly expressed and sometimes what people express are not really their needs it's, it's interesting. Um, and so it's, it sometimes calls for a deeper listening. Is there a need 
that's beneath the surface, that's not being expressed. And, and really looking carefully. And then sort of accessing that, um, that visionary imagination to see if there might be a way of meeting both. I mean, we could be, you know, we could be concrete about what you're thinking of, but in as much as I've explored it, there's usually some way to, to meet uh, both needs. But sometimes the, sometimes the needs that present themselves, you know, like, again, it might be, you know, I want to win or I want to have my way or I really totally want this, and that's what sets up the conflict, but it may be something else. It may be I want to be um, whatever, connected, or I want to be respected or something like that. So it's really an invitation to listen. If it feels stuck, then just listen and listen more deeply. Just just like in the Gandhi story. I think it's an interesting place. I'm, I'm actually, as I'm hearing your question, um, it touches a, a kind of a personal chord for me because my older daughter is in the process of a divorce. And... Mm, but my sense is that sometimes there are places where where people can no longer meet, yeah. and that the actual transformation and healing is then in creating the going apart in a way that is non-harming. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't think that's just in intimate personal relationships. I think it's in lots of different mm-hmm. situations where the, the um, staying together, whatever that might look like, isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful, Mary, because this, this model isn't to suggest that two people definitely have, you know, can find a way to work things out. Mm-hmm. You know, it can mean that the deeper, you know, it may be, I don't know, um, you know, sometimes in relationships, uh, especially, you know, I, I've been in a long-distance relationship, and sometimes one person really has to live on the West Coast and another really has to live on the East Coast, you know, and there really isn't any way around that. And so, and, and, but you could reinterpret that. The deeper need might be connected with needing to be a certain place. Mm-hmm. So the need, the deeper need is not being this place or that place, but it's something else that has to, has to come out or happen. Okay, last one, I guess. Yeah. Um, it seems like it's so dependent on the other person. You know, we were talking about a little bit in a small group too, but um, you know, I know I have certain people that I can have this type of dialogue with, and the things I have. But I feel like a lot of my friends that aren't quite mm-hmm. have the same background. It just, I don't know. Um, so it just—it seems mm-hmm. like all this stuff. It depends on the other person, whether one can do it, as it were, in a community. And, and that, that is the question which has come up in um, several of the small groups that I've, uh, in, in, that I've been at. And, and that, um, it, that 
in some ways, to you know, wise speech or working with relationships in the spirit of our practice or working with conflict in the spirit of our practice, sometimes we can only do that by ourselves. And I think that it's important to see that. And sometimes in these sort of blessed times, we can do it as part of a, a partnership or a, a community. But that really to, to look to, to all of what we've explored here, it makes sense to say, sometimes I need to really do this practice more or less by myself in some environments and not to, um, not to sort of force it or expect or blame those others who don't want to do wise speech or work with wise speech. And that there's a tremendous amount of practice which can still be done when we just do it by ourselves. That's really a positive way to say it. That, that um, there's tremendous learning possible even when we just practice by ourselves. And that's, we can always do that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.